From the Garrison Institute, this is Climate, Mind, and Behavior. I'm Eleanor Bennett. Each episode will explore groundbreaking intersections between climate change, resilience, contemplative practice, and human behavior. Lois Gibbs is a renowned environmental justice activist and author. You may also know her as the champion of the Love Canal disaster and the mother of the Superfund. In 1980, the Superfund was enacted by Congress after Lois Gibbs and her community achieved a victory in relocating over 800 families living near a 20,000-ton toxic dump site known as Love Canal in Niagara Falls, New York. In 1981, in the wake of Love Canal, Lois Gibbs founded the Center for Health, Environment, and Justice in Fall Church, Virginia. Today, CHEJ serves over 300 rural working-class communities, tackle local issues like fracking, toxic chemical waste, and climate change. Lois Gibbs spoke at the United Nations headquarters in New York this spring with a group of mothers fighting on the ground for clean air, water, and the well-being of their children in Flint, Michigan, and St. Louis, Missouri. I met Lois Gibbs outside the UN doors moments before she was scheduled to speak. So you are a mother of four, as well as a grandmother, I hear now, and an environmental justice leader and activist. And I'm wondering how you balance those different identities. Well, they're actually all one and the same. The reason I became an environmental justice activist was to fight for my children. My children were being sick at Love Canal. So um, as a result, I got into this movement and now I'm helping other moms. I do, I'm very disciplined about my time. Um, I do take time off for family. I put it on the calendar and nothing gets in its way, including one time I was invited to do a Phil Donahue show and said, no, I can't do it. And my board was really angry at me. And I said, no, these things need to be balanced because otherwise you just burn out. And I've been doing it for 35 years and I'm not burned out yet. And I think the balance is what really matters. So I remember reading about the prayer vigils that were held during protests at Love Canal. Was there any strong spiritual connection among the community there? There actually was. There was a group of faith leaders, um, the Ecumenical Task Force, and it brought different faiths together. And a lot of people were church-going folk at Love Canal. You know, they're blue-collar, church-going, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, you know, that whole kind of thing. And so there was a lot of people who were really looking for spiritual guidance, in part because the pressure was so much they needed to turn to someone, and also because they were obviously hoping for some kind of intervention because the government wasn't moving, right? Um, So so prayers often help give you somebody to talk to who is a friendly source who's looking out, at least theoretically, for your best interests. Thank you. And what was your connection to that? Did you have any kind of spiritual background growing up? Um, I was raised Catholic, Irish Catholic, with my whole family. Um, but actually at Love Canal, I was involved with the First Presbyterian Church, um, and I taught Sunday school. So I was involved with the church. I liked the church community because it was a community of people from the neighborhood who got together, and, you know, it was more than just religion. It was, you know, social kind of stuff. So community was sort of brought together through that. Yeah, I mean, church is about community. Church is about communities, um, regardless of your faith. It's, it's people who come together with their children, and they not only pray together, but they play together as well. So I work for the Garrison Institute in Garrison, New York, and we have a program called Climate, Mind, and Behavior. 
And basically we believe that through things like contemplative practice, including prayer and meditation, and many other practices from different wisdom traditions, that by sort of applying those to social change and environmental justice, we can really make a difference in the world. Do you have any thoughts on that in general? No, I think that's right. I mean, I think that what what you learn is how you should practice living. And, you know, if you're learning to do unto others, if you're learning to clean up your own mess, which you learned in kindergarten, right, um, that matters. I mean, those are really values. And America, in gen- you know, in general, I don't know about other countries, but certainly in America, values are really important to people, whether they're religious values or family values or cultural values. And I think that helps to move people in ways that just issues don't. And, and I think it's really important to be inclusive of those and embrace them and not push them away, which I've seen many do, because they're not the same values you, you support or you practice. And what has your experience been with people who are alerted to the full impact of environmental injustice, especially climate change? Well, it's really it's a really a mixed review. I mean, some of the people who are the victims of climate change, like in Norfolk, Virginia, I mean, every time there's a full moon and a high tide because the sea rise, their houses are flooded. Um, and government is going in there and they're moving houses by putting them on stilts. But if your house is not worth $140,000, you don't get stilts, you get floods, right? So, so it's an injustice in the most vile sort of way. Um, because their homes are not as expensive doesn't mean these particular folks should somehow suffer differently, right? So, so we, you know, tell that to people. And some people are like, oh, those poor folk. Well, no, you can't say, oh, those poor folk. You need to stand up and say, this is unacceptable. You know, changing, I, I call it the climate change of public opinion, the climate change of cultural opinion, that it is no longer acceptable in the United States of America to say, because you're poor, your house doesn't get stilts. And I'm just using that as an example. There's many, you know, climate change examples out there. Um, But this is not acceptable. It's just plain not acceptable. And we should all be standing together and saying this is not acceptable. They worked as hard for their little plot of land and their little home as somebody who has a half a million dollar home. And, And they deserve the same level of assistance and justice and help. Thank you. And what do you think it takes? I think you've probably had a lot of experience in this to move people to action because I have so many conversations with my friends. I'm 24 years old and some of them are sort of overwhelmed by grief about things like environmental injustice, chemical toxins, and some of them are not overwhelmed at all and in fact they're galvanized by it. So is there like a balance and how do you find that? Um, I don't think there's a balance. I think people are only moved into action when they find it affects them. Somehow, you know, it could be a moral, it could be a culture, it could be a religious, um, you know, that you must protect others who are less fortunate. But if it's just all those poor folks in Norfolk, they're not going to be moved. I mean, the, the thing that I don't believe in apathy, I believe that everybody will be moved. You just need to find that thing that moves them. And, and it's complicated. There's no simple thing. Everybody keeps talking about, well, we just need to get everybody convinced climate change is bad and the world will move. No, it will not, um, especially if it doesn't directly impact me. Why should I care? And that's, the, that's really the barrier and the obstacle we must get over uh, and reach out to those individuals and say, well, the reason you need to care Maybe you just care about money and taxes. The reason you should care is because all of your taxes are going to be sucked up 
mopping floors, right? And replacing homes time and time and time again. You should care because one time you put the houses on stilts, you're done. Um, so, so it's not always moral. It's not always the right thing that people latch on to. Um, but there is something for everybody. On time. We, okay. Uh, we need at least 15 minutes. But... Okay. Yeah. Do I have time for one more question? Right where we are, right next to the, the oh, chase. Thanks. No, right across the street. Okay. Okay, one more quick question. What is the source of your commitment and hope? Um, my source is, is that I believe there is hope. I believe that if people make change, that change will occur. I, I've seen people do amazing things. I've seen people move to who you would have never thought would move. Um, and so I just have faith in the people. I have faith that people will rise to the occasion, that people will make a difference. And, and that's Everyone has to have that, otherwise we're going to lose. Thank you very much for taking this time. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Not going to run. Okay. Uh, sorry to be so quick. And like that, she's gone. To learn more about the Garrison Institute's Climate, Mind, and Behavior program, visit garrisoninstitute.org, where you can also listen to an archived podcast of this show. Join our mailing list and sign up for our monthly email newsletter delivering the latest research and programs from around the world that promote resilience in a changing climate, right to you. Our theme music this week is composed by singer, songwriter, and activist, Natalie Merchant. You can find her music on iTunes, and you can learn more about her support for a ban on shale gas hydrofracking in New York State on her website, nataliemerchant.com. Thank you.